But this morning, uh, we're going to continue our uh, Church Under Fire series, flagging the seven greatest threats to the American church today. And uh, I sort of realized, funny this week, <clears throat> in preparing, I should have, you know, a better uh, preacher would have planned it out this way, but um, unintentionally, six of these seven threats, I think, can really kind of be thought of as contrasting pairs. I think the Christian life in many ways is lived in a tension between two dangerous extremes um, on, on either end of a spectrum. And so you take the issue of knowledge, for instance, uh, that we examined both sides of in weeks one and four of this series. Knowledge is a good thing, but it's a dangerous thing. And so on the one hand, we cautioned in week one against the threat of ignorance. Uh, As believers, we're called to be people of the truth. Jesus prayed that we be sanctified in the truth of God's word. That's John 17. But at the same time, we acknowledged last Sunday that it's entirely possible for us to know all the right truth, lowercase t, truth, without knowing personally, relationally, the capital T, truth, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus himself, the Jesus who rebuked the Pharisees. In John 5.39, for searching the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness to me. Jesus said the Bible can't save you. All they can do is point you to the one who can, point you to me. You need a relationship with me. And so we need to beware of ignorance on the one hand, but on the other hand, we need to beware of intellectualism as well, of confusing knowledge about God with knowledge of God, knowing God. Similarly, in weeks two and three, we said we seek to, to... to live the right balance in our dogmatism, our doctrinal firmness. On the one hand, we noted in week two the threat of compromise, that on many issues as a church we should be, we must be dogmatic in our stand for truth. Things like abortion, things like our care for the poor and the oppressed, the marginalized, the exclusivity of of salvation in Christ, these are non-negotiables for Christians. We cannot let their political incorrectness in the world today dissuade us from addressing them uncompromisingly as a church. However, in week three, with the threat of divisiveness, we warned that if we let that pendulum swing too far in the direction of dogmatism, we can become rigid and sectarian. And we begin to split churches not over uh, issues like Christ's divinity or salvation through faith, but over worship style preference or the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. And so it's a balance. And this and next week we're gonna observe a similar thing, one more contrasting pair, this time around the issue of activity. Next week, Jesus is going to warn us against being overactive. That's the threat of busyness. But this week, he's going to caution us against being underactive, and that's the threat of comfort. Comfort is this morning's theme. Polly and I were shopping for a new mattress recently, And I was absolutely paralyzed by uh, how many options there are out there. You know, Polly knows better than to even try to send me grocery shopping uh, because I spend 15 to 20 minutes comparing and contrasting the relative prices and nutritional values of the 17 different types of peanut butter at Deerberg's. So you can imagine how shopping for a four-figure mattress that I'm going to be spending a third of my life on went. Um, after my decision to follow Christ and propose to her and come be your pastor here, I think this is probably the fourth most consequential, weighty uh, decision in my life. But at any rate, <clears throat> I must have had this sermon somewhere running in the back of my mind because as we were laying on our 70th or 80th mattress with the sales associate you know, talking to us about coil counts and all the, the newest uh, uh, Tempur-Pedic memory foam technology, I sort of got this image of Jesus standing in the the corner of the showroom all by himself and me kind of walking over to him and realizing that he's he's not there selling mattresses, he's selling a cross. And maybe I ask him, what's the coil count? (laughs) No coils, just splinters. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Unfortunately, I'm afraid that many churches, even so-called evangelical churches, have not always been very faithful sales reps 
of the biblical gospel. We're not always selling what Jesus sold. Because it turns out it's a whole lot harder to sell crosses than it is to sell mattresses. Right, if you're looking for fast growth tips for your church, if you want to double your membership and triple your baptisms and quadruple your giving, your budget, don't sell them crosses, sell them hope. Sell them you know, comfort without the radical call to discipleship. Sell them heaven without the call to die to oneself. Sell them Jesus loves you without the part about how much he hates your sin about how he calls you to crucify your flesh, Galatians 5.24. Crucify your old self, Romans 6.6. 6. Definitely don't tell him about the part about how much you're going to be hated by the world all along the way, John 15.19. The cross? I don't know. But comfort. Now comfort sells. We want a Jesus who saves us from the penalty of our sins without really minding the presence of ongoing sin in our lives. Jesus and my sin, I can hold those two things at the same time, right? We want a Jesus who accepts my one-time sinner's prayer as a valid ticket into heaven instead of demanding a lifelong obedience of faith. To be sure, to be sure <clears throat> God promises us that he will comfort us, especially when we suffer for his sake, that's 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So God wants us to be comforted, but being comforted is very different than being comfortable. The comfortable don't need to be comforted. Jesus says, you're already comforted in this life. In fact, here's how he warned the comfortable in his day. He said, woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. We need to feel the weight of his exhortation here. It's a West County church, people. So to be very blunt, the, the, the very pressing look in the mirror of God's word question for you and for me this morning is this. Is your faith comfortable? Is yours a comfortable faith? Is it a pillow-top Christianity, which is really no Christianity at all, according to Jesus? This morning, Jesus is going to give us eight cures for comfortable Christianity in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And with each of them, I want to ask you a very specific, pointed, challenging personal question to try and help you evaluate whether yours is a pillow top faith or a cruciform faith that's the way of the cross so would you stand with me as you're able as we read the word of the lord together from matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 12 Hear the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, <clears throat> and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, 
for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh, Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. And yet it convicts us. This passage in particular is one of the most piercing, penetrating, challenging in all of your word. <clears throat> we need to feel the full weight of it this morning. And yet, Father, we need equally to feel the comfort and joy, true comfort of your blessing that you pronounce here blessings for those who will turn to you in faith and allow our lives to be characterized not by our flesh and by the way of the world, but by your spirit and the way of the cross. God, I pray that that would be more true of us this morning, that we would be cut to our core, convicted of our need for you, and that we would repent of sin and areas where we fall short to be meek, to be hungry for you, to be mourners, to be peacemakers, that we would be broken over our sin and simply turn to you in faith and allow you to develop more of this kind of heart after your own heart to be grown within us. We pray for our good, Father, and for the good of the world and for your glory most of all. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <coughs> so the context here, Matthew 5, is commonly referred to as the Beatitudes from the Latin word for blessed, or as Kent Hughes, whose commentary I'm going to be leaning on heavily in this sermon, Kent Hughes dubs them the beautiful attitudes. They list for us the beautiful attitudes, the identifying marks of a bona fide follower of Jesus. Pastors will often refer to this title, this sermon, the character of the kingdom, these are the character attributes of kingdom people. It's difficult to overstate the importance and influence of these 12 short verses. St. Augustine described them as the perfect standard for the Christian life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer based his classic work, uh, work The Cost of Discipleship, upon the exposition of this passage. Even for those outside the Christian faith, this passage is profoundly shaped uh, for instance, Gandhi's political philosophy, Friedrich Nietzsche, Hitler's favorite philosopher, hated what he called Jesus' slave morality that he outlined here. In fact, the Nazis produced their own edited version of the Sermon on the Mount because it was deemed such a threat to their own brand of Christian German nationalism and the will to power. Simply put, the Beatitudes are the most influential section of the most important sermon that has ever been preached. And as such, we could easily spend a week apiece on, a month apiece on every single verse here. But my aim is much more modest this morning. I simply want to help us try and appreciate how uncomfortable true Christian faith is. And specifically, we ought to be uncomfortable in eight ways. Number one, we need to admit our spiritual bankruptcy. It's, that's uncomfortable to admit that you're broke. But that's our, that's our situation. Verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, poverty, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, before we even get to what it means to be poor in spirit, we need to know what it means to be blessed. It does not mean to be happy, as Hughes points out to us. Happiness is a subjective state, a feeling, but Jesus is making an objective statement here about what God thinks of us, of the poor in spirit, of the mourners, of the meek. Blessedness indicates what he calls the smile of God, or what Max Lucado calls the applause of God. And so that's what true Christians want more than anything, right, is to hear well done and good and faithful servant, the applause of heaven, the smile of God. Who gets that? Who enjoys that? Well, for starters, the poor in spirit do. They get blessed. Now, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? 
Well, I think that Jesus summed it up for us pretty perfectly in a single parable from Luke chapter 18, so I can do no better than to simply read it for you. This illustration. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. They were rich in spirit. That they were righteous, and, and so they treated others with contempt. He said two men went up to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thusly, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far away, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, if I asked you which of those two men had a more comfortable faith, the answer is rather obvious, isn't it? And that Pharisee was very comfortable in his own spiritual skin. He was self-content. He was self-assured, confident. But by contrast, there is nothing comfortable about throwing yourself at someone's feet. The mercy of God. Have you ever had to beg for something? Was it comfortable? Have you ever been totally at someone else's mercy? Have you ever forgotten your wallet at a restaurant? And went, went out to eat, see some nods. Glad to know I'm not the only one. You make it to the end of the meal, you reach for your back pocket. Oh, no. You know, even then, most servers won't make you beg them. I mean, they, they might hold on to your watch as collateral while you run home and get your credit card and come back. But how humiliating is that? Friends, do you realize that you and I have no watch to, to put up as spiritual collateral? our salvation that's our spiritual situation right, we, we, we just finished eating enjoying all of God's good gifts in this life creation our relationships the simple pleasures of life like food and, and drink life itself so many blessings the song we just sang it's his air in our lungs we don't deserve a single breath so many blessings. We just consume and consume and consume, and then we reach for our spiritual wallet to try and repay the Lord. Only to realize that not only is it not in our pocket, listen, you don't have a wallet. You don't own one. And now you start to really sweat as you look back at the bill. Well, how much do I owe here? Maybe I can fumble together some. And the bill says perfection. Matthew 5:48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's God's standard. That's heaven's standard. Heaven is perfect. It's for perfect people. So you realize the only way for you to settle up your, settle up your debt is to find someone who is perfect, who's willing to lay down his life of pure obedience and to trade it for all of your ungrateful sin and selfishness. But who would do such a thing? Just then, in your moment of desperation and anxiety and worry, Jesus walks into the diner. The question for you and me this morning is, will you throw yourself in humility, be willing to be humiliated, to grovel, to beg, and throw yourself at his feet and beg for mercy? Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Number two, we need to be broken over our sin. <clears throat> Verse four says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, Jesus doesn't say anything explicitly here about sin, and so am I just over-spiritualizing the passage? I don't think so, and here's why. In the Bible, there is nothing inherently good about mourning, nor anything inherently bad about laughing. Bible tells us to laugh at certain times. Jesus laughed. 
So when Jesus says in Luke 6, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep, I think we need more context in order to understand him rightly. After all, as I said, Ecclesiastes 3.4 plainly states that there is a time for everything. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. Moreover, some mourning in Scripture is actually accursed. You think of Amnon in 2 Samuel 13.2, who mourned because his lust was not fulfilled by Tamar. Think of King Ahab, who mourned because he coveted Naboth's vineyard and he couldn't have it. So some mourning is cursed. Now I think the context here, especially being couched in between Jesus' commendations for the poor in spirit and then those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus is pointing us to the fact that he's talking about being broken specifically over sin. And first and foremost, over our own sin. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the broken hearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Who gets saved? Only those who are broken and crushed over their own sin. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God. You want to repay God? How do you do it? It's a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And we need to not only admit our spiritual bankruptcy, not just on some intellectual level. It's not enough to just comprehend the idea of sin and then, you know, be able to reason your way to, to, to accept the idea that I guess my sin must have consequences and, okay, perfect God, you know, hell, okay, I can kind of get, get on board with that and theological. No, it's to be broke. We need to be broken over our sin. If, we, if you have never been broken, friend, like visibly, emotionally, spiritually broken over the weight of your sin, if you don't ever get choked up sharing your testimony, if you don't ever get choked up worshiping the Lord, singing the words that we sing on Sundays, if you don't ever, as you're reflecting on what Jesus has done, what he had to do for you, to rescue you, that doesn't move you. Being reminded of it as we take the Lord's Supper together on Sundays, attending a Good Friday service, watching him hang there on the cross for you, bleed out for you. If that doesn't move you, I want to humbly encourage you to question your faith. Secondly, we Christians ought to be a people who mourn not only over our own sin, but over the sin of the world. We ought to be broken over all sin. It ought to break our hearts to watch the people in our lives who don't know Christ and continue to suffer under the weight of their own sin. It ought to break our hearts. We ought to mourn for those who are affected by the sins of others. Now what about the unborn slaughtered by abortion? Do we mourn for them? Do you mourn for the victim of domestic abuse? Do you mourn with her? Do you mourn with the victim of human trafficking? Do you mourn with kids stuck in failing public schools? Do you mourn with the thousands of people who will die all around the world today from preventable diseases? Do you mourn with the unreached people groups who literally have no, never heard the name of Jesus and thus have no access to God's cure for the disease of sin? Who does your heart break for? That's your mission field. They say a mother is only as happy as her saddest child. Right? A pastor is only as happy as his saddest congregant. A Christian is only as happy as her saddest neighbor. And who is your neighbor? Well, go read Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. According to Jesus, the scope of our Christian care and concern should extend far beyond where we sometimes tend to draw those boundary lines very narrowly around you know, who we really look out for and care and concern for. It's much broader. What does your heart break over? Does it break over your own sin, first and foremost? Does it break over the sin of the world? And what are you doing about it? Does it take you outside your comfort zone? To do something about it. Number three, we need to cultivate gentleness. Verse five, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What is meekness? 
Hughes explains for us, meekness is not weakness. It does not denote cowardice or spinelessness or timidity or the willingness to have peace at any cost. Neither does meekness suggest indecisiveness, wishy-washiness, or a lack of confidence. Meekness does not imply shyness, nor can it be re- reduced to mere niceness. So I was preparing for this, this sermon I, I came across, and so I asked Ellery, you know, trick question, I guess, uh, this past week, you know, baby, who, who's the nicest person you know? And at first she said me. I was like, well, clearly you don't know me very well. You know, but then, you know, no, no, for real, who, who's the nicest person she thought about it? She's a pastor's kid, so what did she say? Jesus, right? Jesus. So we had to go and read Matthew 23 together. So I could point out, listen, Jesus was not nice. You won't find the word nice anywhere in the Bible, much less to refer to Jesus. He was not a nice guy. Not all the time. Not when he didn't, couldn't be. But here's where Hughes describes what Jesus was for us. He was meek. Jesus said of himself, I am gentle and lowly in heart. As the incarnation of meekness, he displayed it in two ways, both of which showed his power. On the one hand, in respect to his own person, he never retaliated. When he was mocked and spat upon, he answered nothing. Even in the throes of death, he pleaded, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And yet, when it came to matters of faith and the welfare of others, Jesus was a lion. He rebuked the Pharisees' hardness of heart when he healed the man's withered hand on the Sabbath, contrary to their law. He was angered with his own disciples when they tried to prevent little children from coming to him. Jesus made a whip and drove the money changers out of the temple. All of this came from the incarnation of gentleness. But here's the point for our study on comfort. What did all of Jesus' gentleness earn him? A cross, right? If you were committed to standing up like Jesus did, for the welfare of others, while also refusing to call down a legion of angels to annihilate their oppressors. See, that's the thing. It's the third way. We're talking about the, the, Jesus' way is the third way. It's turning the other cheek. It's refusing to fight back, but it's also refusing to stay on the ground to be victimized. That's hard. But what does the third way earn you? The cross. Meekness earns you a cross. Jesus promised as much. And this dog-eat-dog, will to power, climb the corporate ladder and step on however many people along the way you need to, meekness earns you a cross. If they hated me, they'll hate you too, he said. But I will call you blessed. And you shall inherit the earth. Do we trust him? We trust him enough to lose our own life in this world in order to find it in the next one. Are you meek? Are you uncomfortably meek? Number four, do you desire the bread of life above all else? We need to desire the bread of life above all else. Verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Listen, if the R in your Bible there for righteousness isn't capitalized, go ahead and fix that. It's a translation error. Jesus is not referring here to trying your hardest to be a better person. He's referring to himself, the perfect embodiment of righteousness, capital R, righteousness. Because here's the thing, all of your good deeds... Isaiah 64, 6, Bible makes it clear. All of your good, your best deeds on your best day are but filthy rags before a holy and perfect God. We need a righteousness that comes not from within us, but from above. We need to hunger and thirst for Jesus. And here is what he promises us if we do. John 4, 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, the righteousness I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him becomes a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger again, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst 
And then right here in Matthew 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for me. Capital R, righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. How, how, how are you hungry and satisfied at the same time? That's a paradox, right? Hungry and, and yet be filled and satisfied? I think this paradox only applies in the case of Jesus. Jesus is the only thing that we can desire, that we can yearn for, long for, feel like we can never get enough of, and yet somehow that leaves us feeling full. <clears throat> so let me ask you this morning, question number four, what do you desire above all else? What are you insatiably, uncomfortably hungry for this morning? Better yet, because our hearts are wicked and deceitful, they can fool us. Better yet, if I ask those who know you best, those, those you're closest with, what does is, what is she want more than anything in life? What is he really hungry for? How would they respond? Is it comfort? Is it a life of ease? Maybe recognition? You want to be noticed for all that you are and that you do? Maybe you just want a break. Can we be honest? Some of, more than anything, you want a vacation this morning. Maybe you're a really good person, and more than anything, you want to make the world a better place. Maybe you want intimacy in your marriage with your spouse. Maybe you want a better life for your kids. You want salvation for your kids. There's any number of good things that we can desire in this world, friends. But according to Jesus, there's only one right answer to that question. Is he your one thing? Do you desire Jesus and the righteousness that comes only through him above all else? And do you realize that here's the thing? When you do, as a bonus, he throws in the whole world as, a, as the cherry on top. That's Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, capital R again, seek, seek Jesus, and uh, all these things will then be added to you. You get it all thrown in. But if you seek the world, you'll lose it all. Is Jesus your heart's deepest desire? Number five, we need to enjoy giving compassion and forgiveness. I hope you're appreciating, by the way, my acrostic here in your bulletin, A, B, C, D, E. That's uh, it's not easy to do. Probably not very humble of me to point that out, you know, and look for credit. Not very poor in spirit, but uh, verse 7, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What is mercy? Hughes points out for us there are really two dimensions to mercy. There is compassion, which is the, the physical, emotional care and concern for those in need, this worldly kind of mercy. And then there's forgiveness, which is spiritual mercy, forgiveness. And Hughes notes that in both cases, mercy, here's the important thing, it's never just a mere sentiment, empty words. Compassion is always mercy in action. Hughes tells the story of a 19th century preacher who happened to cross a friend whose horse had just been accidentally killed. While a crowd of onlookers expressed empty words of sympathy, the preacher quietly stepped forward and then said to the loudest sympathizer, well, I'm sorry, $20. How much sorry are you? And he took off his, off his hat, he put a 20 in and started to pass it around. That's mercy. True mercy demands action. James 2.13 warns us that judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Whew. You need to feel the weight of this. Similarly, 1 John 3.17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Some of you were able to come yesterday and help out 
some of the demolition work at a recent visitor of West Hills who's only been coming a couple months now, friend and neighbor of the Stewarts, Greg and Katie, whose house recently burned down just two, two three weeks ago. And you know, Greg reached out to me afterwards to, to, to thank us as a church for kind of organizing that. And even though they've only been here two, two months, like, you know, getting people to, to come and to serve and be the hands and feet of Jesus. And he, he mentioned that before the Stewarts came to West Hills 10 or 12 years ago, they had been at another church here in town that shall remain nameless. And there's a tornado that came through and leveled their house. And he said, you know, we, we served in kids' ministry every week. We attended, you know, every, we were in a life group. Uh, we even reached out to the elders, the pastors of the church to let them know, like, <laughs> our house got that down. And the response that they got was, we'll be praying for you. And that's good. Prayer is good. You know what else is good? Carrying brush out, <laughs> clearing drywall. Oh. This, is, this is what it means to be a church, to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world as compassion in action, not just empty words. And the same needs to be true of our forgiveness as well. Jesus told the parable of the unmerciful slave in Matthew chapter 18 to illustrate this. He said, the, a slave owed his master an immense sum. <clears throat> in today's currency, over $20 million. The debt was impossible to repay, and so he pleaded with his master, who, with astonishing mercy, forgave the entire debt. Incredibly, however, the wicked slave then turned around and went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him pocket change by comparison, and he threw him in prison until he could repay the debt. Jesus said, what do you think the master did? The master went and he punished that wicked slave. Why? Because as Paul Tripp says, no one ought to be able to give grace better than the person who realizes how desperately in need she herself was of it and yet how richly God has lavished it upon her in the person of Christ. Christians, we ought to be the most merciful, compassionate, actively compassionate, forgiving people in the world. Is that true of you? Question number five. Do you enjoy showing mercy, giving compassion and forgiveness away to others? Are you uncomfortably merciful? You know, do, do you give until it hurts? <laughs> if, if it doesn't really cost you anything, is it really sacrificial love? God says it's, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Is your life a living testament to that truth? Number six, we need to face the knife and thereby the Lord. Face the knife and thereby the Lord. Here's what I mean by that. In verse eight, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now here's the thing, friends. You don't become pure in heart. You, you don't become merciful and meek and hungry for righteousness by hearing a good sermon from me or even by hearing a good sermon from Jesus himself and then resolving to go out and try harder. It's not how it happens. Listen, your spiritual heart condition is far more dire than that. You need more than just some fish oil vitamin pills for your heart. You need more than just some warfarin I, like the high dosage stuff for heart disease, you need nothing short of open heart, heart transplant surgery. That's what you and I need. Listen, if only the pure in heart, not the, not the pretty good, not the mostly good righteous, but the pure in heart shall see God. If only those whose righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, Matthew 5.20, the professional do-gooders, 
If only those will enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. If we truly must be perfect, that's God's standard, perfection, as God is perfect, Matthew 5.48, to enter heaven, then you and I don't stand a chance unless we get new hearts. We don't need better hearts. We need new hearts. And listen, God promised you six centuries before Jesus was even born, listen to what God promised us. He said, I will sprinkle clean water on you on that day, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. There's coming a day when I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And friends, God made good on that promise 600 years later through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus for you. God is the good physician. The Holy Spirit is the scalpel. And Jesus provided the heart. That is Trinitarian heart surgery. Will you receive him? Will you repent of your sins this morning and ask God to take out and throw away your old heart in the trash and receive Jesus' own heart into yours by the power of the Holy Spirit and by surrendering your life to him today in faith? If you will receive him, you will be saved. That's the good news. Have you had that surgery? Listen, here's the thing. Let's bring it back to comfort. Surgery is not comfortable. Anybody in here had surgery recently? Is it fun? My mom recently had her knee done. My father-in-law had his hip done. One of the common themes in surgery, it's not fun, especially not the recovery. I said, if you, if you will invite Jesus into your life, he is going to mess some things up for good. But it takes some adjusting. It takes some recovery. It's not comfortable, but when you need the surgery, it's a good thing to get it. And friends, this surgery, your spiritual heart surgery, to get a pure heart, if you have not had it, it is absolutely urgent. Don't leave here this morning without it. You have a life-threatening disease, sin, and Jesus is the only cure. You need to receive him today. Don't wait a moment longer. Once you do, what's number seven? Number seven, we need to get busy fighting for shalom. Fight for shalom. Verse nine, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The biblical concept of peace here, shalom, in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, means so much more than just not fighting. Otherwise, it wouldn't make much sense for me to exhort you to fight for peace. It wouldn't make sense for Jesus to say, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. It would be a contradiction of terms. No, peace, biblically, shalom, means wholeness. It means completeness. It means nothing is lacking. Things put right in the world. And so, if you've been tracking with, with Jesus and where he's heading in all these six Beatitudes thus far, what does it mean in context then for you and me to be peacemakers? Once you've admitted your spiritual bankruptcy, been truly broken over your sin, once you've desired the gentle character of Christ to be your own instead of your hard-heartedness, once you've desired him, the bread of life, above all else, and you finally face the knife in your much-needed heart transplant, what's next? The next thing Jesus calls you to is to pay it forward. Because there's an entire world full of people out there who don't yet know him, and therefore they stand rightly condemned under the guilt and the weight of their sin. And in their sin, they are at war with God. That's how the Bible depicts it. Romans 8, 7, the natural heart of flesh is at war 
with God. And friends, that's not a battle you want to fight. That's not a battle you want your loved ones to have to fight. That is always, God is always going to win that battle. You and I were once at war with the living God, but here is the gospel good news, friends. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, distant from God, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our, what? Peace. Reconciling us to God in one body through the cross. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far off. And now, friends, he's calling you and me to go out and preach peace in his name to those who are still far off, to be peacemakers. So let me ask you very directly this morning, Question number seven, will you do it? Will you do it this week? I know you'll say you'll do it. We say every week, we always end with our benediction from Matthew chapter 28 together. We'll go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that Christ has committed. I know you'll say you'll do it. Will you do it? If you have been saved, if you've been called out of your sin and the kingdom of darkness into God's glorious light and freedom and hope, will you now share that hope of Christ with those who still live in bondage and who are at war with God in your life this week? Will you be a peacemaker? Even if it means discomfort. Because here's the thing. Evangelism is always uncomfortable. Like I think sometimes we have this perception that, well, that's not my spiritual gift. Someone else really likes to tell people about how they're going to hell, but not me. You know, Evangelism, that's not always the most effective evangelism, by the way. But anytime you're, you're, you're having that conversation, it's going to be uncomfortable. I don't care if it's with a stranger or with somebody you've known all your life. There's different ways that it's not, but it's just uncomfortable. Guess what? Jesus hasn't called you to a life of comfort. He's called you to a cross, not a pillow top. He's called you to witness for him boldly. And lastly, number eight, he tells us what's going to happen when you do that, if you obey him. If, you, if, you, if you're a peacemaker, here's what's going to happen. Here's why he ends here. Will you have happiness when you are hurt, inevitably hurt for Christ? I had to get a little... Funny with the wording here by the H's, but you get the point. Will you have happiness, joy, consider it joy, when you are hurt for the sake of Christ, persecuted? Jesus ends in verses 10 through 12 with the reminder that if you live for him, if these beatitudes, if the beautiful attitudes, the character of the kingdom, if it's truly the marks of your life, then you will suffer. It's not if you'll suffer, it's when you suffer. You will. I mean, the Apostle Paul makes it most clear in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's pretty cut and dry. I don't think that's just contextualized for Rome 2,000 years ago. America today hates true, genuine Christianity just as much. Paul experienced it personally. We will too. He said elsewhere that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The only way into the kingdom of God is through many tribulations. Why is that? Why is it? You know, we're, we're nice people, aren't we? Shouldn't the world like us? Why does the world hate Christians, true Christians, so much? Hughes explains, first, Poverty of spirit runs counter to the pride of the unbelieving heart. Those whom the world admires are the self-sufficient who need nothing else, not the poor in spirit. Second, the mourning, repentant heart that sorrows over its own sin and the sins of society is hated by the world that rejects the very notion of sin. Third, those who do not know Christ regard meekness as weakness. Fourth, hungering and thirsting for the spiritual, for Christ is foreign and repugnant to a world that lusts after only what it can touch and taste. Fifth, the truly merciful person is an awkward, embarrassing rebuke to the uncaring, selfish world. Sixth, the pure in heart, focused on God, 
provides a convicting contrast to impure, self-focused culture. And seventh, the peacemaker is discomforting because he will not settle for a cheap and counterfeit peace. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. He will seek to truly reconcile people, sinners, to their Savior, Jesus, even if it means discomfort for him. So the foundational reason for a person, that such a person will be persecuted, Hughes says, is that he or she is like Christ. And Jesus said, if you're like me, then you should expect what they did to me, they're going to do to you too. And so let me ask you, Christian, with our last eighth question here. When was the last time you suffered for your faith? A faith that costs you nothing is worth exactly what you pay for it. Were you sold a pillow top faith of comfort all those years ago when you made a profession of faith? A faith that cost you nothing more than a trip down the aisle to pray the sinner's prayer? Maybe a lifetime of church attendance when it's not too cold and snowy out, when you feel like it. But hey, the perks are eternal life and the admiration of the world too. See, that's the thing. It used to be easier, more comfortable to be a Christian in America, I think. It used to be more comfortable to be a Christian than not to be a Christian. I think, I think we've seen that change in the last 10 to 20 years here. And personally, I think that's a really good thing because we are finally finding out who bought a pillow top faith and who bought a cross. So I ask you, which one did you buy when you came to faith? If you are a genuine, poor in spirit, broken-hearted sin-broken, Jesus-hungry, meek, merciful, born-again, heart-transplanted, peacemaking follower of Jesus, when you are persecuted, then hear his blessed assurance, blessed assurance. As you leave here this morning to go out in the world and be persecuted some more, hear this, friend. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake for my sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, Jesus says, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Amen. He's worth it. Let's pray.